0: Am I being driven by a productive passion? Is there have I tapped into what it is that really drives me? Am I busily bored right now, or am I really, uh, you know, pursuing my curiosity, developing my mind? Am I slipping into comfort? Am I just defaulting to this decision because it's the easiest thing? It's what's right in front of me, or am I doing this because it is something that's going to grow me and push me and help me develop into what I'm capable of becoming?
1: This is love your work on this show we help you achieve success by your own definition. This is about living a balanced life. This is about living and working according to your values. This is about making money through things that make you happy. And at the same time, it's also about finding the grit to persevere when you meet a challenge. I'm David Cadavy. I've been an independent creator for more than 10 years now. I've written a couple best-selling books, Designed for Hackers, now The Heart to Start. If you are new here, welcome. Again, I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcasts app. For you regulars there, I hope that you'll forgive the longer intro. I made an interesting discovery the other day. Apple has released detailed stats for their podcast app. Podcast stats are notoriously unreliable. It's so hard to figure them out when you look at them on, say, Libsyn, and they keep on changing the way that they collect those stats. But this release from Apple is pretty groundbreaking because it shows a graph for engagement for every episode. And no, that's not something that you get to see otherwise. So I can see where people skip and where people drop off, and this of course is going to help me make the show a lot better. Now one of the most surprising discoveries that you might be interested to hear is that most of you listening on Apple Podcasts aren't subscribed. Something like 60% of listeners on Apple Podcasts are not subscribed. So if you are a regular listener, please do subscribe. If you are a new listener, subscribe as well. So that way you can be sure that you don't miss new episodes. It really helps other people find the show and that helps me keep this show going. So I'm exploring a longer intro just in case that helps new listeners decide whether they want to subscribe or not. So we'll see how that goes. On this episode, I'm very pleased to have Todd Henry as a guest. Many of you are probably already familiar with Todd's work. He has a great podcast called The Accidental Creative. He actually just recently interviewed me on his podcast, so go check that out. He's also written a ton of books. My personal favorite is called Die Empty. It's all about finding the urgency to pursue your creative destiny. You can see why I might like that book, especially since if you've read The Hard to Start, you know that it's very related. There's quite an overlap there. His newest book is called Herding Tigers, and it's all about leading creative people so they can do their best work. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the different kinds of work. What is making, mapping, and what is meshing? And what is your style when it comes to executing your ideas? Which types of work are you weak on? Which types of work are you strong on? And what's the result of that? And how do great creative leaders create an environment where their people can actually be really creative and effective? The killer tip from this, I think, is that great leaders have great rituals. I love that. Lots of listeners to thank today. Uh, when I talked to Pat Flynn back on episode 101, I asked you to tweet at him to tell him that you liked the show. So thank you to Brandy Colmer and Carlene LeMay for thanking Pat on Twitter. I really appreciate that. Also, thank you to Lord Jacobs, who replied to me on Twitter to say how much he loves the show. Now, apparently, this person's legally defined as a lord by English law. That's what he told me. I'm not exactly certain how that works, but thank you, Lord. Or I guess I should say thank you, Lord Jacobs. I'm not sure how that goes, but that sounds a lot better. Thank you to everyone reviewing The Heart to Start on Amazon. Thank you so much. It is hugely appreciated. It really helps so much. It's incredible also to see the stories from people in their reviews about what they've learned from the book and how it's affected them. If you have read The Heart to Start, please, please, please review it. You will probably hear me say that a hundred more times. Just go to cadivynet slash rate and click on a star rating. That is is slash rate. And dare I say, I think asking for donations for the show is really starting to work. We have a bunch of new Love Your Work Elite members over on Patreon. JM just joined at the $15 a month level. Thank you so much for joining And JM also picked up a Love Your Work t-shirt with the 20% off discount that comes with membership. Also, thank you to Edosa Ness and Shane Snow, who are also new Love Your Work Elite members over on Patreon. Shane Snow, by the way, is author of the awesome book, Smart Cuts. I'm actually going to be having Shane on the show in several months to help him promote his new and upcoming book, which looks really exciting. And if you want this show to continue, please do donate at kadavy.net slash donate. This here is another sponsor-free episode, and at this point, half of production costs are covered by our Patreon members. That is really amazing, but if it was just 26 or 27 more people pledging $5 a month, all the production costs would be listener-supported, and that would be an amazing day in the life of this podcast. Here is Todd Henry. Okay, I'm here with Todd Henry. And I think the way that you ended up on my radar was this book called Die Empty. And that title connected with me so deeply and immediately, but it seemed like a a very gutsy title. Was there any reluctance (laughs) to call a book Die Empty? Oh yeah, of
0: course. Yeah, and and frankly, I had a lot of people that I deeply respect. I mean, other authors and people in the space who cautioned me greatly about the you know the idea of, of titling a book anything to do with death because people don't want to think about death right and uh, you know I, I sort of envisioned myself I think even I, I think I even wrote about this in the book you know I envisioned myself standing on stage in front of a giant banner that said die you know, like die empty <laughs> and uh, you know just some of the unique challenges of that but but frankly the message um, was one that took the took hold of me very deeply uh, a number of years before I wrote the book, and I thought, you know what, whether we whether this succeeds or it fails, I am going to go out. I have to live the message of the book. I'm going to die empty. Right. I'm going to I'm going to put it out there and. Um, if people don't receive it, if it's not the best marketing choice, then that's totally fine because I feel like this is the message I want to carry out into the marketplace. And uh, fortunately it, it resonated and uh, connected with a lot of people and um, you know the kind of the rest is history. but yeah, it was it was a very, I mean, I think like a lot of people who do who do creative work. I mean, you always sort of second guess and question some of your creative decisions in the moment, and sometimes there's not really a clear answer, and so you just kind of have to go with your gut and be willing to own whatever it is you do. And if you own it, then a lot of times people will come along with you. It's only when you sort of waffle and hesitate that people, you know, start to think, eh, "I'm out of here. I'm not going to pay attention to this."
1: Right, and there's it seems to be a way that when you have a bold idea like that, before you put it out into the world, there is that fear, or at least for me, there is that fear. But then it's kind of the moment that it becomes free, that it's out of you. It takes on this right. completely different form. Is that something that you experience?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. And, and by the way, I want to be really clear that the, the the idea of you know die empty is not something that originated with me. And, and I, I tell the story in the book of how that sort of uh, became a, you know, that, that one incident, um, where I experienced, uh, you know, uh, basically being challenged not to take my best work to the grave with me, uh, where that, that sort of, um, ethic became instilled in me. Um, and, and, you know, sort of really, I, I went back to my office and I wrote, you know, die empty on a note card, put it on my wall, put it in my notebook. And it really defined many years of my life and my work. And, uh, really was the beginning of sort of the foundation of my business, frankly, um over over a dozen years ago now and and that was largely due to the fact that I felt like there was all this stuff I was carrying around with me all of these ideas and uh all of these uh you know bits of value that I wanted to give to others but I wasn't creating a forum in which to do that I wasn't finding I wasn't finding expression for those ideas and those bits of intuition and so as a result Um, you know, I was, I think every day I was, I felt like I was pushing and pushing and pushing my body of work into the future. And yeah, I was still working. I was still leading a team. I was still producing great work, but I knew that there was a lot of stuff inside of me that wasn't finding form. And so um, you know, for me, that was really kind of the beginning of a very long journey of, of uh, you know, starting a business and writing and coaching, consulting and doing all the things that I do now uh, all over the world. But it all sort of began with that, that ethic of you've got to put yourself out into the world every day. You cannot carry your best work around with you because if you do, it's going to go to the grave with you and it's all going to die inside of you. All of that value will be buried dead in the ground. Never to be seen by human eyes.
1: Yeah, this is something that resonated with me very deeply, and I, I think that pe- anybody who's read my latest book will will understand exactly why that that's kind of urgent urgency that you feel to get this work out of you, whether you even know what it is uh, that that's kind of an inside of you that you feel like you have to offer the world, but then actually getting it out there is is kind of the tricky part. And there was uh, some concepts that you introduced that I really loved was this idea of mapping, making, and and meshing. Can you give us a short introduction to those concepts?
0: Sure yeah so there are there are multiple kinds of work that we do, and I think we tend to think of work as just this you know, giant ball of twine you know that we sort of do every day It's this giant mesh of tasks and activities and and all of that, but really, we can parse our work out generally speaking into three different kinds of work. the first is mapping and mapping is planning it's strategy it's the work before the work it's developing task lists it's establishing your plans, determining what you're going to do. The second kind of work is making, uh, because I work mostly with creative pros, right? Creative professionals. So it's making, it's executing, it's doing the work that we've planned. And this is how most people think about their work. They plan and they do. They plan and they do. They strategize and they execute. And this is these are the two arms of any great organization. Uh, most theorists will tell you you, you, you have strategy and execution. But there's a third kind of work that we have to do if we want to be effective, especially as creative pros, if we want to make sure that we're not taking our best work to the grave. And it's what I call meshing. And meshing is the work between the work. It's the little things that we do to keep ourselves engaged, aligned, focused, inspired, to follow our curiosity, develop our mind, develop our skill set, to push ourselves out of comfort zone, to identify any false narratives that are creeping into our lives and begin to overcome them in some capacity, or at least um, introduce new narratives that will help us overcome those limiting and false narratives. Um, These are all acts of meshing, and none of them are going to show up on your radar if you're only obsessed with planning and doing, planning and doing, right? Um, You're not going to pay attention to those things. And what happens over time is uh, people who map and make at the expense of meshing, I call these people drivers they become decreasingly effective at doing increasingly efficient things. So they're getting a lot done because that's really what they're doing. They're planning and doing, planning and doing, but they're not really developing themselves. They're not uh, taking any measure to make sure that they're engaging in the right kind of work. They're just doing whatever works in front of them, whatever helps them feel like they're making progress. And so you can spend your life accomplishing a lot of stuff that you look back on and you say, That doesn't really matter. I really don't care. You know, none of that, none of that, uh, uh, none of that stuff that I have done over the course of time is something I would point to and say, yes, that represents the best of me, because they weren't taking the time to step back and to pay attention to the patterns and ask themselves, am I really building a body of work that's reflective? of the sum of my greatest potential? Or am I building a body of work that's reflective of the sum of my greatest compromise? And I think many people, unfortunately, don't ask that question until it's very far into their career. And then they look around and they say, how did I get here? (laughs) How how did I end up in this job with these people doing these things? And listen, there's always a way to redirect from wherever you are. So that is not a desperate situation. And, And by the way, your body of work is much more than just your job. It's also, you know, it's you know how you develop your family. If you have a family, it's how you you know invest in your friends, how you invest in your community, it's how you tip the barista at Starbucks, right? It's all of the things that you do in your life that are a part of the value that you contribute where it didn't previously exist. So that is your body of work. But our job is the most physical manifestation of our body of work. It's the one that we point to most easily. And so it's really easy to get to a point in your career where you realize, I have made decision after decision after decision based upon... Uh, whatever was most convenient at the moment based upon circumstances, opportunity. But I never really step back to ask, is this really what I want? Is this really the body of work I want to build? Or is this what everybody else tells me I should do based upon somebody in my situation? Um, and so, yeah, so really what meshing does is it helps us step back and ask, am I... Am I being driven by a productive passion? Is there have I tapped into what it is that really drives me? Am I busily bored right now, or am I really uh, you know pursuing my curiosity, developing my mind? Am I slipping into comfort? Am I just defaulting to this decision because it's the easiest thing? It's what's right in front of me, or am I doing this because it is something that's going to grow me and push me and help me develop into what I'm capable of becoming? Um, you know, am I falling prey to some false narrative that's telling me, well, people in your circumstance should do this, so therefore. You should do that because that's what other people do in your, in your situation. Or if you want to be really valuable, you have to be one of those people. You have to be the person in the spotlight, right? Or you have to be the person who's doing that kind of work. I mean, these are narratives that creep in over the course of time. Is it ego, right? This is another one, a really big one, actually. Am I doing this because I want to defend myself and to defend some position, some external positioning of myself? Or am I doing this because no, I really believe this is right. Or am I just protecting my ego, By doing this, you know there are any number of ways we can slip into traps. Um, I call call them the seven deadly sins. We can slip into traps that prevent us from engaging fully and freely in our body of work. And every time we point to a delta, we point to a change, we point to a body of work that doesn't truly represent us. And I just think that's profoundly sad. So, when you ask, like, you know, why did you write this book or do you regret calling it Die Empty? Absolutely not. Because that's, you know, sort of as you can tell, that's kind of the message that's, that's burning in me.
1: Mm-hmm. Because you've done enough meshing, you have a, a good sense of what you're about, and you only have so much time uh, and, and energy available to do things. And so, through that meshing, you are able to uh, find the motivation and, and and the conviction to do the mapping and do the making. I guess that makes you a a developer is what you would call it in the book.
0: Right, right. Yeah. When you, when you engage in all three of those kinds of work, my, my tendency, by the way, under stress, when we're under, under pressure, um, you know, many of us have one of those three kinds of work that we tend to ignore. And for me, it's mapping. Right? I tend to ignore mapping, and I'm really great at meshing and I'm really great at making, but I tend to ignore mapping, which means I, I often am not being led by the conviction of a strategic plan. So when things get boring for me, when I see a new object that I want to pursue in my environment, your shiny object squirrel... Um, you know, I tend to drift, and I call these people drifters. You know, I tend to leave a wake of half-finished projects behind me because I'm not being driven by the conviction of a strategic plan. So I have to make sure I have people around me, and I actually have partnerships, business partnerships, with people who are really great at planning because I'm really great at delivering the goods, really great at coming in, having ideas, delivering the work, uh, and also seeing the patterns because I'm stepping back, but I'm not always great at the planning part. and So I have to build business partnerships with people who are, really great at the planning part. And then I bring my strengths, they bring their strengths, and it's kind of a complementary portfolio in that way. So it's good to know which of these you tend to struggle with, mapping, making, meshing, because you can always build somebody into your organizational structure, into your business, to help you, so that you don't get too far off the rails.
1: So you're talking about doing some management, working with other people. I think that ties in well to your new book, "Herding Tigers." I assume that that is a, a reference to the expression of herding cats. How do you, how do you think about that? How does that tie in?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because that phrase just came out. I was speaking at the conference, and I said almost verbatim. Uh, you know, many people think that leading creative people is like herding cats, but I think that's actually quite demeaning. It's more like herding tigers, right? These are powerful, majestic, beautiful creatures uh, who are capable of great beauty, you know, but they also are capable of ripping you to shreds if you don't lead them well and strategically and intentionally. Um, and that's, you know, frankly, that's what it's like leading creative people inside of organizations. Um, you know, creative people have to be strategically and intentionally led and they all have unique needs. And the problem is, you know, the reason, frankly, I think that creative people, highly talented creative people within organizations get such a bad rap and they do. There are all kinds of stereotypes. There are all kinds of things people say about creatives. Oh, they're so flighty. Oh, they're so insecure. I mean, we hear these things, right? Which is why this herding cats thing has become such a common way of describing it. I think it's Demeaning and frustrating when I hear that, but I think the reality is a lot of the reason we see those things exhibited by creative people in the marketplace is because they're not being led well. It's because they're not getting what they need from their leader, and a lot of that's because people don't understand what it takes to lead creative people. I and mean, many people who are leading creative teams, for example, like in an agency, something of that nature, a marketing firm, are people who at one point were practitioners. They were maybe designers or writers or you know whatever. And then, because they were really good practitioners, they were promoted into a management role. And now they're like, "Well, what do I, what do I do? I don't know." I mean, the only example I have was my last boss, who was a total jerk, you know. <laughs> like, so they don't really have. There's not a clear path for them. There's not a clear set of practices that they implement in order to be effective. And so, uh, you know, what I really wanted to do with this book, with Herding Tigers, is offer something of a roadmap for people who are stepping into a role of leading creative people and help them understand some of the things that creative people need and what happens when they don't get it, and more importantly, what happens when they do get it, and what does success look like as a leader of creative people?
1: yeah, and you talked about some of the misconceptions or or myths or stereotypes of creative people, and I think that it's important to to understand where some of those come from, so for example, that they want total freedom, and it's actually because the environment is uh, is very is unpredictable. they only care about what's cool, right. they lack business acumen i mean can you Can you go down a little bit about where those Where that behavior comes from, it seems like it's a product of the environment.
0: Yeah. Well, the first one you mentioned, you know, the creative people only want freedom, right? Um, This is a myth that exists. Well, the creative people, they just want to be free. You know, don't fence me in. I just want to be able to follow my idea wherever it goes. And there is an element of truth to that, just like there is with any stereotype, right? There's an element of truth to it, but it's been overblown. It's, It's not fully accurate. The reason that a lot of creative people have that reputation is because their environments are overly constrictive. When you try to overly constrict creative people, yeah, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to push back against your boundaries. That's just what they're wired to do. What creative people need is bounded autonomy. They need freedom within clear boundaries. And so they want boundaries. They crave boundaries. As a matter of fact, a lack of boundaries is not helpful to the creative process. Healthy creating requires... Good boundaries. Um, I think it was Orson Welles who said the absence of limitations is the enemy of art, right? So you have to have some kind of bounding force to keep your team focused. Otherwise, they're going to dry out on the plane. They have no clue where to spend their energy. So you have to have some boundaries, but they can't, the boundaries can't be overly constrictive or they're going to, they're going to start feeling frustrated. So this is kind of a, a strange tension that we have with leading creative people is that you have to have stability. But you can't have too much stability, right? So they, they crave stability, they crave clarity, and they crave protection. So you have to be clear about expectations, about what you want, when, what they should be focused on, when they should be focused on it, more importantly, what they shouldn't be focused on, and when they shouldn't be focused on it. You need clarity of expectations, clarity of systems, processes, how is this going to get done, when's it going to be due, all of those things feel like you know to a lot of people from the outside, they feel like overly constrictive boundaries, but those are those smell like freedom, the creative people, because then they're able to make priority decisions about how they spend their thought cycles. And at the same time, they need protection from you. They need to know that if everything goes off the rails, that you're going to stand in the gap, you're going to protect them. you're going to protect the resources they need. you're going to, you're going to get buy-in from the organization at the right points in the process so that they don't have to worry that, uh, we're going to work on something for three weeks, and then somebody's going to swoop in and change everything at the last minute. No, my leader is standing in the gap for me, and is getting buy-in, and is communicating co- the consequences of you know changing direction and all of that, so that I have what I need—the stability of environment that I need to be able to take risks. If if the environment is chaotic, then the work will suffer. The work will become machine-like because you you can only wrestle with so much uncertainty as a creative pro but if the environment is stable then the work will become more creative more expressive and more risky which is what you want you want the risks being taken on the work but to do that you have to create st- a stable environment but here's the tension david sorry i, I just keep going on feel free to cut keep me on, off on going now. Go. okay great, great great okay good so you need stability but the second thing that creative people need and this is a bit of a weird dichotomy and there's a tension here is challenge they need to be pushed They need to to feel permission from you to take risks, to try new things, to be themselves, to bring their ideas to the table, and to push out into areas where they've never maybe played before. Um, They need to be pushed to grow. They need to be pushed to try to solve problems that intimidate them. So creative people need to be pushed, and they also need to feel that you have faith in them. They want to be known, they want to be seen. They want to know that you believe in them, that you believe that they can do it, that they can accomplish it. Um, and that you have faith and that you're putting your reputation behind them. So they want to be pushed, they want to be challenged, but here's the problem. With challenge comes instability. So as a leader, you're constantly putting your fingers on those dials and you're constantly dialing up stability and challenge, stability and challenge within your organization. And when you have both of those right, then your team will thrive. If you lack stability, but you have high challenge, your team's going to be angry. They're going to be frustrated. It's going to feel like a sweatshop, right? You're just using me and abusing me and you're just burning through me and you're going to bring somebody else in. They're going to get angry. If there's high stability, but low challenge, it's going to feel like a production shop. It's going to feel, your team's going to get bored and highly talented people are going to move on because they're going to feel like you're not using me for what I'm capable of. So you have to keep your eye on stability and challenge and make sure that you're dialing both of those in. And by the way, this has to happen on an individual level. This is why it's it's not like herding cats. It's like herding tigers. It's like strategically and individually leading these powerful, majestic beings to make sure they have what they need in order to thrive.
1: And one of the methods that you introduced for... Uh, keeping things on track is is rituals. I thought that was a, an interesting idea—the idea of weekly, monthly, and quarterly rituals. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, great leaders have great rituals. This is the one commonality that I've discovered in all of the leaders I've been I've, I've interviewed over the last ten years. And by the way, a lot of the insights in the book—you know—people are like, "Well, t- tell me about the leaders that you interviewed in the book." And I said, well, I interviewed a lot of leaders, and I I do interview a lot of leaders, but frankly, I've had had conversations with hundreds and maybe even thousands of creative pros over the course of the last 10 years, and those conversations usually go something like, tell me what you're not getting right now, right? (laughs) Tell me what it is that you're not getting from your leader. And so a lot of the stuff, like this book is written from the perspective of what creative people need from their leader. But one thing I discovered in talking to leaders is that great leaders have great rituals. Great leaders have uh, practices built into their life to help them assess what conversations do I need to have right now with my team? Uh, Is there any place where I'm blowing trust in some little way that I'm not even aware of? Um, Are there any weird dynamics happening right now? Have I noticed anything strange in in meetings? Is there anything that needs to be pruned from our culture right now? Is there any place where I am in danger of endorsing or normalizing deviant behavior on the team in a way that it's going to disrupt everybody else. It's going to create some sort of cultural tailspin. Um, so great leaders have great rituals, but not only as it relates to the team, but leaders, great leaders, uh, take time to to step back, to study, to develop their minds, to develop their curiosity, to push themselves to think in new ways. Great leaders take care of themselves because if you if you are not inspired, you cannot inspire your team. Right? If you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of your team. So great leaders understand that in order to be able to bring what I need to bring every day to my team, I need to also be building rituals into my life, creating rhythm in my life. So I'm not treating myself like a machine, but instead I'm treating myself like a rhythmic, creative being, which I am, because I treat myself like a machine. I will eventually begin to produce machine-like work, predictable exactly what's expected equal input equal output and that's not what we want and the same thing happens with your team if you them like a machine as well but in order to be able to lead my team effectively i need to take care of myself and make sure i have good rituals in my life to help me preserve my energy and bring my best effort every day
1: yeah, that's a great idea rituals definitely preserve mental energy and allow you to keep things on track and and going well todd henry thank you so much for being on the show uh People should, of course, go out and buy Die Empty. There's a book called The Accidental Creative that you have. There's Herding Tigers. Where else can they get more of you?
0: Yeah, um, I would encourage people to listen to The Accidental Creative Podcast as a starting point. Uh, I've been uh, doing podcasts for about 12 years now. We have millions of downloads. Um, We put out one to two episodes a week about life as a creative pro or life as a leader. Um, So you can check that out or just visit toddhenry.com and you can learn more about my books and all the other stuff I do.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so, so much for making the time. Thank you, David. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd Henry. Go out and buy his new book, Herding Tigers. Todd is an incredible writer. Everything that he writes is so organized and so clear. Even if you aren't managing creative people, it's actually really great to read his writing. I feel like it makes me a better writer every time I read something written by Todd Henry. So go check out his books. Is Love Your Work helping inspire you to pursue the life and work that you love? If so, I could really use your help. This show takes work and it takes money to make. To keep making this show and to keep it free for everyone, it needs your support. Besides subscribing and reviewing the show, there's one big thing you can do to help, and that is to donate. I work to make this show nourishing and thoughtful in an economy that's all about grabbing attention. This is not the short route to success. If you believe in Love Your Work's message of living a balanced life and finding fulfilling work, please join Love Your Work Elite, hosted on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me, vote with your dollars, and keep Love Your Work going. You're going to get bonus content and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at lywelite.com. That's lywelite.com. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by top Love Your Work Elite members, such as Arif Akhtar. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Kadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Kadavy, Inc.,